If you turn over to Romans chapter 7, I think that Romans uh, 7 and maybe nine, a couple other chapters in this book, are rather difficult. And so I've been saying this for weeks. I feel like I'm teaching really above my pay grade here because it's, uh, it's, it's way beyond me, some of the things that we'll go through and study together. But through the power of God's Spirit, He'll give us understanding, I'm sure, as we uh, take apart this text. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. But I wanted to... Uh, just give a little introduction, and then I'm actually going to read the whole chapter uh, because we want to make sure that we keep things in its context. So, um, when you think of the word law, just that word law or the law, uh, I would say most people have negative thoughts. <laughs> uh, it conjures up negative thoughts. Um, we don't have to look too far in our society to see all the civil unrest the rebellion in behavior against, quote, the law. Um, And it's not just recently. It's been going on as long as there's been mankind on the face of the earth. But this last week, I looked up the word law in the dictionary, and here's what I found. One definition was this. The principles and regulations established in a community by some authority and applicable to its people whether in the form of legislation or of custom and policies recognized and enforced by judicial decision. Wow, that sounds like a mouthful. Another definition said this, any written or positive rule, I thought it was interesting they said positive rule, or collection of rules prescribed under the authority of the state or nation as by the people in its constitution. Thirdly, another definition of law was this. The controlling influence of such rules, the condition of society brought about by their observance, maintaining law and order. And then one just said a system or collection of rules. But I think none of us, by default, look forward to rules, look forward to regulations. And some of them are just rather silly. Redwood City's just enacted a new law if you have a well in your backyard. And they said, well, due to, in another community, someone had their well hooked up directly to their house water and the thing backflowed into the city water, which is not a good thing. So because of that, one individual, they created a whole bureaucracy. I call it a money-making scam. (laughs) Because I had the guy come out and look at our well at Jetter, And I said, it's not even hooked up. I don't even use it. I don't even think there's any water in it. I said, okay, well, well, we'll look at it when we get there. And the gentleman came out. He was very nice. And he looked at it. And he said, yep, it's not hooked up, is it? I said, no. He goes, you still got a pump there, though. I said, yeah. I said, I don't think it pumps for more than 10 minutes if I actually went through the work of hooking everything up. So, But I said, with the drought, I don't know, I may look at reinforcing this well and seeing if it's worth saving. And he said, well, it might be well worth it. And I said, well, what do we have to do? He said, well, you have three options. You can either put a backflow device in at the curb, and that will take care of everything. I said, well, what's the backflow device for? Well, it's in case you ever did really hook up your well and it wouldn't come through to the city water. I said, even though it's not hooked up to my plumbing at all, it doesn't matter. He goes, that's just the rule. That's the regulation. He says the other option would be to, um, you know, you could have the well filled. 
with, they don't even use cement anymore because it's not uh, friendly to the environment. So, but he goes, that's really costly to have that done. He goes, I'd recommend you just pay the $60 a year fee. And then they come out and they inspect it every year and say, yep, still not hooked up. $60. And I thought, man, what a, what a scam that is, you know. I didn't like that. And I put it off as long as I could on our property at Jetter because it was addressed to me and I don't own the house. The church does. So I thought, oh, I'll just put this off. Eventually it'll go away. Well, it didn't. You know, eventually I ran into the guy and, hey, by the way, you know, we need to take care of this. I said, oh, yeah, that's right. And uh, so I said, technically, you were sending the notices to me and I don't own the house. So I just kind of lived there. And he said, okay, well, we still got to get this done. So I met with him and and we'll be paying the $60 a year fee. But nobody likes rules. You know, whether you walking across a yard or a park and you see stay off the grass, your first inclination is, who are they to tell me to stay off the grass? You know, I want to walk right on that grass. Or if you go down the freeway, you know, and the, the speed limit says 55 miles an hour, it's like, eh, 55, you know, 55, 65, 75, what's the difference? You know, if I go 55, I'll, I'll be impeding traffic. So, you know, there's all kinds of rules. Most recently, we found out a lot about the rules in the NFL uh, due to the uh, overinflating or underinflating of the NFL ball. And I thought, you know, this is kind of interesting. I want to go online and see what, what these rules are. Do they really have rules? That, and here's what I found. One of the rules says this, the home club, this is the NFL, dealing with balls, shall have 36 balls for outdoor games and 24 for indoor games. That's kind of weird. I don't know why I just didn't make that the same. But anyway, available for testing with a pressure gauge by the referee two hours prior to the starting game, starting time of the game to meet the league requirements. Twelve new balls sealed in a special box and shipped by the manufacturer, will be opened in the official's locker room two hours prior to the starting of the game. These balls are to be specifically marked with the letter K and used exclusively for the kicker. The ball dimensions, it goes on, it says this. The ball must be a, quote, Wilson. How would you like to have that contract? <laughs> Man, a Wilson hand-selected Ball bearing the signature of the commissioner of the league, Roger Goodell. The ball shall be made up of an inflated 12.5 to 13.5 pounds urethane bladder enclosed in a pebble-grained leather case, natural tan in color, without uh, uh, corrugations of any kind. It shall have the form of a prolate spheroid <laughs> and the size and weight shall be long axis 11 to 11 and a quarter long circumference 28 to 28 and a half inches short circumference 21 to 21 and a quarter inches weight 15 or 20, 14 to 15 ounces the referee shall be the sole judge as to whether all the balls offered for play comply with these specifications a pump is to be furnished by the home club and the ball shall remain under the supervision of the referee until they are delivered to the ball attendant just prior to the start of the game. Now, that's way much more than we ever need to know about footballs. But why do they have all these rules? Why do they have all these regulations? Some of you say so they can be broken, right? Well, that's part of it because people want to break it. They don't want to follow the rules. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 1 says... This, in verse 9, it says, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for who? 
The lawless. Who needs laws? Those who are lawbreakers. That word law, you might find this interesting, is found 523 times in the Bible. Incredible what you can do with computer software. 223 times it's found in the New Testament. Paul used this word law 148 times, including 78 times in the book we're studying, the book of Romans. And since the word occurs, you'll find it 19 times. There's references to it 23 times in the the chapter that we're currently in, chapter 7. I kind of, by default, figure that's Paul's theme for this chapter. Dealing with the law. And... There's been a lot of people that have argued over the fact, well, does he mean the Mosaic law or does he just mean law in general? I kind of come down on the side, he just means law in general. He's just talking about law. Now, there's other commentators that say, well, then maybe, you know, it's, it's referring specifically to the law, but that's not how it is in the original. So that's kind of irrelevant. But it's important to understand that his subject matter throughout Romans chapter 7 is clearly the law. And as we come to this portion in Romans, it's, it's important for us to understand where we have been up to this point. Remember back in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, look back there with me. Paul said this, and this was very controversial. He said, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under what? Grace. At this point in time, his Jewish listeners were about ready to pull their hair out. They what? What is he saying? They lived and died by the law. Everything in their religion, everything in their life was formulated around the law. So when Paul comes out and says, hey, you're, you're under grace, you're not under the law. They, you know, they, eyes rolled back in their head. They didn't know what to do. They were just like, wow, what's, what's he saying? And so Paul has to explain what he's saying here in verse 14. And so in verses 15 to 23 of chapter 6, we've already gone over this, he talks about the first part of that statement, the idea that sin shall not be a master over you. And we went through that. And you can get the messages online or back there in the, the CD table. But it, it tells us that he, he used the picture, the illustration of slavery to show that we will not sin under grace because we have become enslaved to God and righteousness. In other words, sin does not have its thumb on us anymore. Not that we're perfect, but it doesn't have the power. It's not our master as Christians. The Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ is our master. That the chain that once held us captive to sin has been broken. And so he goes through this whole illustration there in Romans 6. And now when we get to Romans 7, he says, you know, I can't just continue on. I have to explain what I said in the second part of of verse 14 all the way back in Romans 6. And so Romans 7 basically is an expansion of that second part of that verse where he said, for you are not under law but under grace. Have you ever been in a conversation where you're talking with someone and they say something kind of just, wow, kind of just, you know, you can't get your mind around it. And you start like interrupting them. It's like, what what did you just, they just, hold on a second, I'm going to explain it. 
Hold on, you see this a lot on talk shows, you know, where they, news, news shows, where they give them like two seconds to answer some big long question. And they start answering it, and the guy cuts them off. It's like, boy, that would be so irritating. You know, I just reach over and say, look, be quiet and let me talk. You know, let me explain what I'm trying to say. Well, that's kind of what Paul is doing here. And these guys are probably going, man, I, I still can't get over the fact that you said we're, we're not under the law, but under grace. And if Paul were to stop right there, they probably wouldn't hear anything else in, the, in this letter. And so he has to do due diligence and explain to them what he is saying when he says you're not under law, but you're under grace. And so in chapter 7, he begins to tell us what it means to be free or what it means to be released from the law as believers. And how this kind of relates to our own being released from the power of sin in our lives. Remember, the, the theme in chapter 6, if you go through chapter 6 and you start counting words, you'll see the word sin appear some 17 times. And that's really the theme of chapter 6. How sin no longer has a dominion over us. And so in his mind, there's a direct correlation between sin and the law. A matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this in chapter 15, verse 56. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So he makes a direct connection between sin and the law. Now, there's a lot of different commentators that make this connection parallel. Uh, Morris, Leon Morris, says this. He says, in, in verse 2 of chapter 6, it tells us that believers have died to sin. Well, in chapter 7, verse 4, it says that we have died to the law. There's a connection there. In chapter 6, verses 18 and 22, it tells us that we have been freed from sin. Well, in verse 6 of our text today, Romans 7, it tells us that we have been released or freed from the law. In verse 4 of chapter 6, it tells us that we walk in the newness of life and that we serve, in verse 6 of chapter 7, in the newness of the Spirit. Our victory over sin is tied mainly with our union with Christ, that we were tied to Him, we're, we're united with Christ in His death, in His resurrection. We went over that in chapter 6, verses 8 to 11. Well, here in verse 4, we see that our release from the law and its sin-arousing power is because that we have been joined, in and, and have been joined to the crucified and risen Savior. So with that in mind, I want us to follow along. You can follow along in your translation. I'm reading out of the ESV out of Romans chapter 7. I just want to take time to read the entire chapter so we get it in its context. So Paul begins there, Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who have the law, who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her, hus to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So that you may belong to another 
to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful, and though through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, But the evil I do uh, not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul here gives us really a clear understanding of what it means how a Christian should relate to the law. 
like I said, we have a lot of negative things about the law. Even amongst Christians, you hear certain Christians who maybe call another brother or sister to task over maybe a sin in their life. And they, hey, we're not under the law, we're under grace, brother. Back up, you know, ease up a little bit. You hear that all the time. And so there's almost the idea today amongst modern day Christians that somehow it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we live because we're under, quote, grace. Well, that's not Paul's point. It's never the point of Scripture. The law of God is a wonderful thing. It's a blessed thing. It's something that we should cherish. And we need to establish that before we even get into our text because if we just jump right into the text, we may still have some negativity floating around in our mind about God's law or about law in general. Laws are good things. I'm glad we have laws. Now, yeah, some of them lead to bureaucratic nonsense, but you know what? For the most part, they keep our society somewhat civil. Can you imagine if there were no laws at all? Whether you like the laws or not, it'd be a nightmare. So God's law is definitely a glorious thing, and we need to um, understand that even though Paul says we're released from it. It doesn't mean it goes away. Turn over in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I just want to highlight a couple verses that talk about God's law. Because it's important to understand that it's not just me saying this. This is what God's word says about his law. Uh, look at chapter 6, Deuteronomy, all the way in the beginning there of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. He says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised to you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontals between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's he talking about? He's talking about God's statutes. He's talking about the very word of God that, that we have, the law of God. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, one of the wisest men that ever lived, says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. What is it? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. To fear God and to keep his commandments. And we don't have to look too far. Ken read from the book of Psalms. But if you turn to Psalm 119. Don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Maybe I should. But 
There's a couple of verses here that jump out. Verse 1, blessed are those, Psalm 119, verse 1, whose way is blameless, who walk, what's it say? In the law of the Lord. Look down at verse 4. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Precepts, law. Verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes or law. Verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. The psalmist is crying out to God to reveal his law to him. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Or verse 97, oh how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. If you jump down to verse 160 there, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. And finally there in verse 172, my tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments or laws are right. See, God's word exalts the law of God. Nothing has changed, beloved. Nothing has changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament concerning the law of God. It's still relevant for us today. It's something that we need to uh, honor, we need to look up to. Now, yeah, we're released from it. Because why did God give the law? God gave the law to show us what? Our sin, our sinfulness. He didn't give us the law so we could get saved. (laughs) Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 42, verse 21. I love this verse, 42, 21. He says, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. The law of God is a glorious law. And even the Apostle Paul, the writer of the book that we're studying right now, when he was in the throes of Judaism himself and really at a pinnacle, in his religious life, bought into all the Jewish religion, all the legalism involved. In his letter to the Philippian church, he testified to the trust that he once had in his observance of the law. It says in Philippians chapter 3, he says, Though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. It almost sounds braggadocious, doesn't it? But he's not bragging. He's making a point. He's pointing out what a radical transformation Christ had made in his life. He says, first of all, I was circumcised on the eighth day, as a good Jewish boy would be, of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, he says, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, what's he say? Pharisee. They were like at the epitome of those who kept the law. They were just, they were so into the law. I mean, it, it, it infuriated them whenever Jesus or anyone spoke out against God's law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. See that? What's he say? He was blameless. 
See, what Paul is saying is if anybody understands what it means to, to be under the burden of the law and to have to keep it, and thinking somehow that's helping you religiously, it was me. And I did that for years, he says. And even our own Lord in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19, Matthew 5, 17 to 19, Jesus wanted to be very clear about the law because maybe some of his followers thought, hey, well, now that Jesus has come and now that we're following him the way, you know, we don't need to deal with all this stuff over here. This is all mosaic stuff. We'll just kind of bury that. That's dead. We're moving on. And I think Jesus came to a point in his ministry where he had to point this out to them. And look at what he says in verse 17 of Matthew 5. He says, do not think, this is Jesus speaking, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth will pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, we need to hear things like this. You know, the church of Christ today, the universal church of Christ, needs to hear things like this. It's not just, oh, just let go and lay back in the armchairs of grace and, you know, let God do his work in you somehow. No. God has given us certain instructions in his word that we're called to be obedient to. We don't just live, you know, fancy free, footloose, the whole thing, and just kind of do whatever we want as Christians because we know all of our sins are forgiven and we're not under the law. So what does it matter? That's really what Paul questioned back in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. In other words, you don't have any right to do that. You don't do that. How can he who died to sin still live in it? 1 Timothy 1.8 tells us, Paul writes, but we know that the law is good. So whether you look in the Old Testament, whether you look in the New Testament, the law is something that needs to be cherished. The law is something that needs to be exalted. Are we released from it? Yes, and that's what we're going to begin to look at. <clears throat> if it wasn't for the law, we'd have no definition for sin. There'd be no way to discern what sin is. 1 John 3, 4 says that sin is what? Lawlessness. So if you don't have any law, you're not going to understand what sin is. That's why when the law was given, it wasn't given as a bunch of stuff that we have to check off every day and do and keep because that's impossible. (laughs) It was given to show our utter inability to keep it. It's kind of like a little little child and you put him in a room with a hot bowl of chocolate chip cookies. You know, the smell, steam's coming off the top of them and the chocolate morsels are kind of melted. And you tell that little boy who hasn't eaten in five hours, you know what, whatever you do, don't touch these cookies. And you walk out of the room, what are they going to do? 
I guarantee you they're at least going to touch him, if not eat him. <laughs> That's just what kids do. See, the law is something that's an essential reality. And that's why in Romans chapter 3, verse 31, Paul asks this question, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? In other words, because we have this newfound faith in Christ, does that mean the law just kind of goes away? And he says, no. No way. We uphold the law. And that's what's important. That's what we have to understand, what God is sharing with us. In other words... If you can come to God by faith and you don't have to do the law, you don't have to keep the law in your own human strength, you can't do it anyway. If God accepts you by faith, do we make the law void? Do we make the law useless? Is that something that just happened in the Old Testament? You know, we're New Testament Christians. We don't, we don't deal with that Old Testament stuff. Not at all. The answer is, is no, absolutely not, no way, God forbid. And he says, rather, we establish the law. And so Paul wants to establish the place of the law in the life of a believer. Because the law is good, the law is holy, the law is righteous, the law is honorable. The law reflects the literal mind and heart of God. We could never throw it out. And as wonderful as the law is, God also wants us to understand that nobody under any circumstances at any time will ever be justified before God by keeping his law. That's an impossibility. So if you want to gain victory in your life over sin, you have to come to Romans 7. And you have to wrestle with this text. Because Paul begins to explain the purpose of God's law, and then he kind of continues and he talks about our relationship to it. Now his thinking was radically opposed by the common Jewish mindset in his day. They would have said, their understanding would have been that the law was given to make us holy. But Paul says the law served to arouse us to sin. In chapters 1 to 5, he shows that it's impossible for us to be justified by keeping the law. We've gone over that. Here he shows that it's impossible to be sanctified by keeping the law. See, a lot of people believe that, well, you know, if they put a good face on, they come to church and make sure their Bible's a little torn and wrinkled up and looks like it's been well-read and all this stuff. And, you know, people are going to think that, well, they must be spiritual. They're really sanctified. Paul says that doesn't matter. What's going on in your heart? What's going on inside? Any one of us can play that game. But that's not something that God is interested in. And so Paul here argues that the law is actually a hindrance to sanctification. Because it kind of gets in the way. And so the chapter here, chapter 7, falls into three sections. Verses 1 through 6. And Paul, we're going to look at that today. We probably won't get through the whole thing, but we'll look at that. Paul shows that we're no longer married to the, to the law. That's the illustration he uses there. It's a picture he gives us. That death has taken place, and now we are joined to Christ so that we will bear fruit for God. That's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we said the old self is dead. You're not a Christian who's made up of a, of a, of a 
a, a, a spirit-filled self and a, and a sinful self, and boy, they're at war inside you, and you have this constant war. No. The Bible says your old nature is dead. It's buried. It's so dead. And for the first time, you're free from that old nature and the power of sin to do the right thing in the eyes of God. And so he wants us to understand that. And so when you get through with that, verses 1 through 6, then you raise the question, his readers would have raised this question, well, what about the law, Paul? I mean, if what you're saying is true, what about the the law? And, And we'll get into this in the coming weeks. In verses 7 to 12, he answers that question. He shows that the law is good, it's holy. And then we get kind of to the problem area of this text in verses 13 to 25 eventually. When our sinful nature comes into contact with the law, it does not obey. Rather, it does just the opposite. It, it, it wants to do what it's told not to do. It arouses itself to sin. And so he shows in verses 13 to 25 this battle going on that sinners have with the law. And there's a lot of different mindsets around this, and we'll, we'll just take our time and go through that. But in our text here today, we'll get started on this. We see here, we're going to look at, first of all, the principle, the picture, the practical application, the purpose, and then eventually the product of, of what this, this process takes place. Because he wants us to understand very clearly what he's saying. And so let's look here, first of all, The overview is basically this. Through our union with Christ, we have died to the law so that we are free to bear fruit for God in the Spirit. That's really what sums up verses 1 through 6. And the first thing we want to look at is this principle that he lays down there in verse 1. He says this, and he's, remember, he's, there, there weren't any chapter breaks or anything like that in the original letter. Okay, so he's coming off of this verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he says this, or do you not know brothers? So he's speaking to probably Messianic Jews, people who've, who are of the Jewish faith who've come to Christ. But he may be addressing Gentiles too. But he says, For do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. And once again, he's, he's speaking to the law in, in general, any law. I don't think he's necessarily highlighting the Mosaic law. I think he's just saying laws are laws. Whether it's the Mosaic law or whether it's a Gentile law, whatever law exists, We understand what law is. We all are familiar with law. And then he says this, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And this is the the understanding, the principle that he wants to give us. He wants us to clearly understand that through our union with Christ, we have died to the law, which only produced sin and death. That's what he needs to under, us to understand. And this, this principle points out here very clearly. I mean, it, it, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. The law is binding on the person only as long as he lives. Think of, of some of the different people throughout 
the history of our nation even. You know, people like Lee Harvey Oswald, okay, committed murder, right? Assassinated one of our presidents. But he was never charged. Why? Because someone took his life before he could be charged. There was no charges filed against that man who killed a police officer in San Jose a couple months ago. Why? Because he killed himself. You can't carry a law and, and apply it and enforce it against someone who's dead. That's Paul's point. And he wants us to understand that. That everybody understands that. That's just a common sense principle. You can't charge somebody with something if that somebody's dead. And so he he points that out in in the very first verse. And then in verse 2, he says that the law, or verse 1, he says the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Verse 2 says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. So he gives us this picture. He, he, he wants to illustrate what he's saying to us. So just like he used slavery before to tell us that we're not bound by sin anymore, we have a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that in chapter 6. Now he's, he's switching illustrations and he says, you know what? It's just like marriage. Now, Paul, by no means, is giving some teaching on marriage. There's been a lot of people in ministry, there's been a lot of even commentators that take this and say, oh, Paul's stating a treatise on marriage, you know, that, you know on whether or not you should be married if you're remarried or they die. Or, he, that's not even what he's talking about. He's simply sharing with us an illustration He's simply saying, hey, you want to talk about law, and, and if you're, you're dead to the law, think about the law of marriage. When you marry somebody, what do you say? Most people, somewhere, say, till what? Death do us part. Now, it's funny, because today, a lot of people are saying, oh, I don't want that in there. <laughs> like, well, I don't know if I want to marry you then. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know. That's kind of weird. You know, that's, that's, that's part of the commitment of marriage. One man, one woman for life. Now, does God give insight on divorce and death and widows and all? Yeah, but that's not what he's talking about here. We can go to other portions of Scripture and we can talk about that till the, the cows come home. I mean, there's a lot of information on that, but that's not what his point is here. He's simply using this as an illustration. And I think that his readers probably said, yeah, I, I get it. You know, that's what the law says. That a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Now, if you take this as a allegory or something that, that Paul is trying to relate directly to marriage and directly to the believer in the law, you're going to get all mixed up. Because eventually the illustration breaks down. When you stop and you you think about this, 
when he says a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Then verse 3, he says this, Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. That's kind of common sense. If you're married and you're married to somebody else at the same time, I mean, in our society, it's kind of crazy. I, I, they even have wacky shows. I mean, there are these people have like multiple, multiple wives and all this stuff, real, reality shows or whatever. I'm like, man, you know, I, I can barely handle one here. How in the world, you know, how would you even do this? Weird. It's just odd. But he states it there, you know, if you do that, then, you know, that's not right. You're going to be an adulteress. That's the the wrong thing to do according to the law. But if her husband is dead, (laughs) but if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. I want to share a couple things about this. First of all, Dying to the law does not mean that we are free from specific moral commandments. It's not the law that died. Okay, we died to the law. You have to make sure you get that right. We need to understand that we did not die to the law so that we could just live lawlessly. That's not the point. We don't get to do whatever we want. You know, there's a lot within Christendom today, a lot of the antinomium understanding that they say, well, you know, we're under grace, so just kind of do whatever you want. No. We're called to be obedient to God's commands. And see, that's what Paul's kind of enemies were saying to him. That's why he asked the question, do we say in verse 1 of chapter 6, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He knew what they were thinking. And Paul makes it very clear that we died to the law so that we might be joined to Christ. That we are under his authority. That's what we've been looking at the last several weeks. And just as a woman is under the authority of her husband, the Bible says, so we are under the authority of God's law. But when we died to the law, it was not so that we could become our own free moral agents. It was so that we could now be joined to Christ as our head, as our husband. So in verses 2 to 3, the woman husband dies so that she is free to remarry. And then in the application, verse 4, it's not the husband that dies, but rather the wife dies to the law, through Christ. That's why I said he's not giving a treatise on marriage here. He's just using an illustration. And you have to keep it at that level. And it's not that we just died, but we were raised, right, with Christ. That's what we've been studying. So he's making his main point here that being identified with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, we died to the law so that we're legally free to be joined to Christ. We're not an adulteress. 
But also dying to the law does not mean that we're no longer obligated to keep certain moral commandments. If you look over at chapter 8, verse 4, the requirement of the law is now fulfilled in us as we walk through the Spirit. He says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, right, but according to what? The Spirit. So now that we're in Christ, now that we've been born again, now that we have a new, we're a new creation in Christ, it's a whole brand new thing that's going on here. And so he wants us to clearly understand that. Um, sometimes it's argued that the only command under the new covenant is the command what? Love. You hear this all the time. Love is the fulfillment of the law. But it's misapplied. Sometimes when you talk about the judgment of God to maybe even an unbeliever, they'll say, well, I don't believe that. I don't believe my God. I believe in a God of love. Or maybe a, a couple who think it's okay to have premarital relations outside of marriage simply because, well, we do love each other. But the New Testament is abundantly clear, beloved, over and over and over again that any kind of intimate relationship is restricted to a heterosexual marriage. That's over and over and over and over you see that. Love does not mean that we're free to disregard the Bible's moral standards, the Bible's moral commands. I mean, even when you talk about love, the New Testament gives us a lot of instruction on love. It says love speaks the truth. Love does not steal, but rather labors so that they're able to give. Love speaks wholesome, edifying words. Love is not bitter or angry. Love is kind, is forgiving. Love does not engage in immorality or greed. You can look at Ephesians chapter 4 and see all that, all the way through chapter 5. And there's a lot of specific commands that were given in the New Testament to believers who have died to the law. So it's not that the law doesn't have any kind of impact on us. It's that we're not under its thumb anymore. Well, what does this mean? Secondly, dying to the law means that we are free from the demands of the law as an impersonal system for approaching God. Salvation, hear me on this, salvation has always been and will always be by grace through faith, not of works. Now, many under the Mosaic law wrongly thought that somehow they could get right with God by keeping the law. And it's true. If you keep the law perfectly, you will live. Matthew 19, 17, we read that, Galatians 3, 12. The problem is, the system kind of brought everyone who tried to live by the law under its curse because no one could keep the law perfectly. Galatians 3.10 tells us that. And we just read where Paul was, was blameless, but really only in the outward appearance. 
See, that's how a Pharisee operates. It's, it's all what's on the outside. So they could dress up and they could, you know, kind of perform this little act of keeping the law. But then Jesus comes along and says, well, what about what's going on inside? <laughs> right? What's on in the heart? So you're really not keeping the law if a woman walks by and you lust after her. Even though you don't act on it, in your heart, in your mind, you're committing adultery. That's when Jesus taught things like that. It blew their minds because they thought, well, who could do that? And that's exactly why Jesus said, you have to be perfect just as my Father in heaven is perfect. And perfect means perfect, not just the way you dress. It means perfect through and through. And they knew they weren't perfect. Just like everyone in this room here today knows they're not perfect. We all have been tainted by sin. See, the truth was that in their heart, even in the apostle Paul's heart, that's his point, he was pridefully righteous. And when he met Christ, Paul came to see that he was actually the chief of sinners, he says. In 1 Timothy 1.15. So dying to the law means that we do not approach God by this impersonal system of performance where you're trying to earn a right standing before God. That's very clear. And you, you can't do that. I was raised in a religion in a church that taught that, that you know, to, to earn God's favor, you do certain things. You go to Mass, you go to confession, you, 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 you take communion, you do, you do all these things. And if you do all these things, then eventually God will kind of like you more. And eventually when you die, you'll, you won't go to hell. You'll go to this kind of halfway in between point, purgatory, and hang out there for a while till maybe some of your relatives are nice enough to give enough money to the church and they light little candles enough that somehow you're promoted to glory. That's a strange teaching. You don't find that anywhere in Bible. And when I would go and I was, as an altar boy, I'd ask the priest, after I was an altar boy, actually in college when I came to Christ, I went back to the priest and I was asking him, this time God was working in my heart. Why do we do these things? And at no point in time did the priest open up the Bible and say, what well, says right here, Steve, in chapter such and such, verse such and such, this is why we, he'd say, well, now, you know, the, the, the church is founded on the word of God and the traditions of men, the teachings of the church. And what you're asking falls under the teachings of the church. I can't point to a verse in the Bible that would say that, but... You know, several popes have taught this, and we believe that they teach infallible truth when they teach ex cathedral, and so we adopt that and we put it on a level playing field with God's Word. That's why, unfortunately, those who are part of that belief system, as sincere as they may be, whenever you elevate something, to the same level as God's word, we got a problem. And so Paul wants us to understand it's not a performance thing here. You don't get brownie points by God for coming to church. It's for your benefit that you're here. It's not for God's benefit. And the third thing here, dying to the law means that we are free from the condemnation of the law. This is what he says in Romans 7, 6, that the law 
held us in bondage. It put us under its curse because we couldn't obey it fully. Paul refers to it even as a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear in Acts 15.10. Just imagine something around your neck that's just holding you down and just this burden. Romans 3.19 says, The law closes every mouth and makes us all accountable to God. No one is able to be justified by keeping the law. Rather, the law brings the knowledge of sin and puts us under God's wrath. Romans 5 tells us the law increased our transgressions and held us under the reign of sin and death. I mean, if you're trying to somehow improve your life by keeping the law or being religious in any way, you're doomed to failure. If you're looking to somehow gain God's approval for your salvation through that process, you're not going to be successful. The only benefit of the law with regard to salvation is that it shows us God's impossible standard of holiness that we can't keep. And finally, we come to the realization, wow, I can't do this on my own. I guess I need a, I need a, I need a savior. I need someone to save me because I can't save myself. Wow. Oh, the cross. Oh, that, Jesus. Can, now I get it. That's why they call him the Savior. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but what? Through me. It's through his work that we're saved. It's not our own. But when we are dying to the law, it means that we're freed from that condemnation of the law. And then the last thing here, dying to the law means that we are free from the inability of the law to produce obedience. He says this in verse 5, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body, he says, to bear fruit for death. In this context, being in the flesh means Before we're saved. That's what he's saying. Before we received the Holy Spirit. Before we were born again. Before we were transformed by God's glorious power of the gospel. One commentator says this. The law apart from the Spirit does not produce obedience. The law apart from the Spirit does not save but kills. And he's going to explain that further in verses 7 to 11. He uses the illustration there of coveting. And for some reason, it must have been a big deal in his society, just like it's a big deal today. See, the problem was not the law that said, thou shalt not covet, but it's with our sinful flesh that wants to covet. The commandment once makes us want to do what it says not to do. That's just the nature of the law. You know, you can post as many copies of the Ten Commandments all over your house. But you know what? That's not going to make you keep them. That's why it's kind of 
interesting sometimes when you have certain people go out and they start to petition and, oh, we have to have the Ten Commandments in this town square. And I'm like, why? Nobody follows them anyway. You know, I get what they're saying. They're driving religion out of society and maybe in their small way, it's, it's, it seems like they're putting it back in. But that's not going to save anybody. Maybe it gives us a foundation upon which to kind of understand what our laws are founded on. But he says the oldness of this letter was a ministry of death. He says that in 2 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7. And he says we basically need a more powerful solution. And next week we're going to look at the phrase he uses there in verse 4. That we were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. We're going to see how that applies to us practically. And that leads us on into the purpose and then eventually what ends up to be the product of all this in verse 6. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that we are truly as believers released from the bondage of the law. And yet we still need to glory in it. We still need to respect it. It is your word. It still gives us guidance. But Lord, I pray for any soul that's here this morning that thinks somehow by keeping the law that they're earning your favor. Lord, we know that not to be true. We know that that's impossible. No one can keep the law in its entirety. As a matter of fact, Jesus even said, if if you err in part of the law, you've broken the whole law. Lord, that should drive us to our knees. That should cause us to become undone. That should cause us to realize that there is no hope for us outside of Christ. And because of our sin, because of who we are as human beings, we need something outside of ourselves to save us. And Lord, your word says that Jesus came to do just that, that he came to offer himself as a sacrifice as a payment for sin for all those who would put their faith and trust in His way, in Him as the truth, in Him as the only mediator between God and man. And the prayer of faith is a prayer that cries out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me, save me. There's no way I can do this on my own. When you reach that point and you pray that prayer from a sincere heart, God will save you. God will transform you. His spirit will fill your life. The Bible says, old things will pass away. Behold, all things will become new. That there'll be a change. For the first time in your life, you'll be able to do what is right in the eyes of God. Lord, we thank you for that. And as believers, we pray that we would just clearly understand That it's through our union with you that we've died to the law. And the reason that that took place is so that we're able to bear fruit for you through the work of the ministry by the power of your spirit. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. Lord, we pray for our fellowship time afterwards, after we sing a song, Lord, that you would just dismiss us with your blessing, that you would bless the food for our bodies as well. We thank you in Jesus' precious name.